Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. of all races like to think the history of race in America is something like this. There was slavery. It was bad. Lincoln freed the slaves. Then Martin Luther King Jr. brought in civil rights. Then Obama was elected. And it's all good. Not so much. It's a pleasant summary, but it actually skips the violence and the horror and the true telling of what actually happened. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot. Gabe will join us in a few moments. This is the final weekend of Black History Month. And as we mentioned last week, staying curious and listening is important in the discussion around the disharmony, both inside the church and outside in our country around the issue of racism. Part of that is often that there's a different perception of the history of racism in our country. That's what we want to focus on today. We'll hear from Soledad O'Brien later, a talk from a few years ago at a Q conference. But first, not that Q hasn't addressed racism before, but since the death of George Floyd, Q has been trying to lean in even more to understand, to listen. Q hosted a virtual event called Q Sessions Race and Repair, as well as during a live event called Q&A, a virtual town hall. They addressed the issue with the help of David Bailey from the ministry Arabon. If you'd like to watch those talks, go to the Q Media platform at qideas.org. Before Gabe joins us, let's take some time to listen to part of the session from the virtual town hall we talked about, where David Bailey talked with several panelists, including Razul Berry, pastor of Bridge Church in New York, about his experience with racism and his understanding. Twelve, fifteen years ago, there was like what I call like kumbaya theology, racial reconciliation theology, and we're like literally pastoring people in a community that's been dealing with years and years of economic policy. I think a lot of the stuff that people are, are, are crying out about is really about federal, state, and local level economic policies that started from 1930s and didn't start to correct itself till around the 1975 minimum. And I think we're still dealing with the consequences of that. If you want to understand what I'm talking about, read The Color of Law. But we were feeling this and dealing with this issue. And at the time, the only people who were really talking about this were either like uh, sociologists, mm-hmm. critical race theory folks, liberation theologians. And so I'm a person that just reads broadly. And I try to be able to articulate other people's viewpoint before I can form my own viewpoint. And so I noticed in the last few months, there's just been a high talk about critical race theory. And you've written two articles about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one article is just really trying to address a little bit about what critical race theory is, and then another article talking about some of the history of the resistance. And just let people know about it so they can look it up. But 
uh, would you explain critical theory, critical race theory, and your concerns about secularism, critical theory, and critical race theory? Sure. Well, I'll, that's a lot. I'm not going to do all that in one chunk. <laughs> but um, what I will do is it kind of give you a story about how I even got into this, because this was not on my radar to kind of invest a lot of time thinking or talking about. But uh, as someone who, you know, was born and raised in Philly, um, you know, my uh, grandmom was part of that great wave of the great migration of black people who were really as refugees fleeing the South um, and uh, ended up settling uh, in Philadelphia and other cities in the North. And um, so the house that I was raised in was a house that she had to have a white realtor actually purchase on her behalf um, because it would have been, as a woman and as a black person, not legal for her to actually acquire the house. And then after two years, you know, move in. As soon as she moved in, for sale signs went up the whole block within a week. Um, so by the time that I got grew up in that same neighborhood, um, the, the tax base had eroded. Uh, the, the school eventually that I was supposed to go to for high, high school shut down. I mean, just as a failed, you know, school. Like, I got to... So I, I'm seeing this, and this is someone who her grandparents were slaves, right? Mm. So seeing and growing and then being in the midst of this story and other stories of my family and just what I knew, I was acutely aware that there was something happening in, in my background and backdrop that was, that was a, a key understanding of how I got here and, and the literally physical space that I inhabited. Additionally, um, so I go to University of Pennsylvania, uh, end up majoring in Africana and sociology while I'm growing in my faith, leading Bible studies and eventually, you know, sharing my faith and things. And so for many years, I had to be in these two different worlds that felt like they had nothing to do with each other. You know, my Christian evangelical world that I love to understand the Bible and, and communicate, but then this other social, you know, justice world that um, oftentimes was very antagonistic toward the faith. And they, the Christian people were antagonistic toward them. And I'm trying to figure this all out. And this was the, these were the experiences that formed me. And throughout all of that, I kind of just started reading the Bible and see, read the prophets and see like, oh, wow, look, God cares about it all. Like, right. I don't have to choose, right? Right. And, and, but, so that's kind of where I was, you know, just kind of landed just naturally just and through, you know, my understanding of history. So in the midst of that, someone shares with me, you know, this article and these statements about social justice. And I'm hearing and I'm starting to read these statements saying that this is the greatest heresy that uh, I've ever faced is seeing a social justice emphasis in the church. And I'm sitting here and I, and I start to read this stuff and, and there's a story and the story goes something like once upon a time, the church was having pure doctrine then, uh, as a result of a few generations after the Frankfurt School, critical race theorists come in and begin to, uh, with a Trojan horse of talking about justice, really in, embrace and want people to in, indoctrinate them into a Marxist worldview. And that's why we're talking about justice right now. And the story was very confusing to me because it omitted a significant thing that I just truly didn't understand. 
which was the black church has been talking about this for 300 years. Right, like right. literally, <laughs> right. Richard Allen, after he got kicked out of uh, St. left St. George's, uh, you know, Methodist church because he refused to stop praying in the church in the segregated area, started the African Methodist Episcopal Church. They had missions going in Africa. They were abolitionists. Like this is a trick. So I'm like, so who are you talking to? You must not be talking about us. And then that's when I realized something. To them, the black church is not the church. It can't be. Because it's interesting. Like if you look at, you can look at a book like Strange Fire that dealt with the issue of the charismatic controversy in the 70s. Or you can look at all the library of stuff about the emerging church. But you, what you never see are people actually engaging with black theologians who are talking about these things. So it's almost like it never happened. Yeah. And so as a result, First of all, it's just ahistorical. Like, these things have been discussed. I mean, there is a guy named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You heard of him? He wasn't a critical race theorist. Like, he was, like, just preaching the Bible. Like, so it was was kind of frustrating. But then as I started, so critical grace theory, this idea that critical grace grace theory is the first article I wrote. And it came out of this idea of common grace and the reality that, we do this in every other sphere of discipline, right. right? You know, we look at, you know, something like we use the word narcissist all the time. Well, that's a word that Sigmund Freud created, and he's the father of psychoanalysis, who was a rabid atheist. But yet, somehow, we find value in some of the insights that he had about psychoanalysis. You turn over to postmodern theory and other things as well. And so I'm like, we have this aspect of common grace in our toolkit to able to embrace this. Why is this such a big deal? Well, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, and that was Razul Berry, who was part of the Q&A virtual town hall some months back. Again, as we wind down Black History Month and you're seeking to listen and learn, a lot of good content is on the Q Media platform at qideas.org. If you're not a subscriber, remember, you can request a free 30-day subscription. As we continue this week, Gabe is joining us now as we continue to focus on the history of racism in America. Gabe, tell us about our next speaker, Soledad O'Brien. Now, many of you may have heard of Soledad O'Brien. She's a great documentarian, an award-winning journalist, a news anchor, producer, covers so many different topics and issues. And we invited Soledad in to give us a, a talk that would help us see through her perspective of covering all so many different stories over the years of race in America to catch us up. Now, this was a few years back, and we pulled it out of the archives because we felt like it did a great job of just helping us all step back and gaining better perspective. So let's listen in now. Q is about conversations, and race is one of the most difficult and uncomfortable and messy but necessary conversations we can have. It is, I've been told many times, the third rail of conversations. And yet, here we are. It is difficult to advance good ideas about how to move forward in this country and around the globe when we have such a a troubled racial history and a very strong reluctance to talk about it and confront it. But we're here today because we are brave and we know that renewal comes about with work, not wishing. And restoration can't be based only on optimism, but actually on reality and honesty. Race does not exist. I am not 
trying to be clever or particularly provocative, biologically speaking, genetically speaking, there is only one race, the human race. So how is it that something that doesn't exist or exists only as a social construct has caused wars and genocide and hatred and violence and division and also brings people together and reflects culture and shared experience and community? I've been reporting on race in America and around the globe for nearly a decade, but my entire life I've been living it. My mother is black and my father's white, and they met in 1958 in Baltimore, Maryland. They met at church because they used to both attend daily mass. And on their first date, no restaurant would seat them together. And so they were turned away, restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, and my mother eventually took my father home and made him dinner. And later she would tell me and my three sisters, see girls, if you could cook, you could get a man. When they decided that they'd get married at the end of 1958, interracial marriage was illegal in the state where they lived, in Maryland. And so they left home, drove to Washington, D.C., and got hitched, and then came back and lived illegally as a married couple in Baltimore. And when their friends told them, well, don't have children, I'm one of six, all of us named for Catholic saints. My parents were terrible at taking advice. But what they faced was real. They could not buy a home in the neighborhood where they wanted to live. They couldn't eat in restaurants. There were jobs and opportunities that were not available to my mother because she's black. And that held my father, in a way, in bondage too. And so even though race is a social construct, it had some very real and tangible effects. Our minds are predisposed, scientists tell us, to make generalizations about people. It's a fundamental fact in the psychological process. We essentialize people. We classify people as if they have some deeply shared properties. A Princeton researcher named Sarah Leslie says that in children as young as four years old, the brain will work to group people as if they have a fundamental deep truth. Black people are essentially this. White people are essentially this. And our brain works to see us and them. And that, of course, sets the stage for stereotyping and for discrimination and racism. But even with that evolutionary disposition to see things as us, good and moral, and them, not so much, the concept of race is actually a relatively new thing in the United States. The idea of a racial phenotype being linked to a hierarchy is actually a modern-day obsession. Take a look at how the early explorers to Africa wrote about their experiences with Africans. From the ninth century, an explorer said this, the king of Ghana is a great king in his territories are mines of gold. The 11th century, still Ghana. The king rules an enormous kingdom and has great power. 14th century of Mali in West Africa, an explorer wrote this, Mali is the biggest, richest, and most powerful state in the world. But by the 17th century, the tone when describing Africans would change dramatically. Here's the great philosopher Immanuel Kant discussing something that seemed to be intelligent but had been uttered by an African. He said this, this fellow was quite black from head to toe, a clear proof that what he said was stupid. Or Hugh Trevor Roper said this, at present there is little or no African history to teach. There is only the history of Europe in Africa. And Linnaeus, remember him from your seventh grade science class? He created that taxonomy that divided human beings into homo sapiens, Europaeus, Asiaticus, Americanus, and 
AFER. It won't shock you, I'm sure, to know that Homo sapien Europaeus, the European man, was described as active and adventurous, and Homo sapien AFER was described as lazy and careless. So we must ask ourselves what exactly happened in that three-century gap when we went from respect of African kingdoms, they're amazing, to Africans, they're subhuman. The answer, of course, is colonization and slavery, and we reap that today. If you're American, you, of course, probably studied the first permanent settlement at uh, Jamestown, Virginia. You know the settlers struggled. They nearly died. But by 1617, they found success with a crop, and that crop was tobacco, and it turned out to be a hardy crop that flourished and, most historically relevant, required lots of hard labor to harvest. And so for Europeans, the new world meant jobs and opportunities. A system of indentured servitude offered people who were willing to work for four to seven years of labor. When they were done, they got corn and clothes and land. And white Europeans, many of them poor and unemployed, came to the new world in droves. And it might surprise you to know that historians say that black indentured servants and white indentured servants worked together in Jamestown under the roughly same terms. People thought not really in terms of color. Someone wouldn't say, I'm white. They might say, I'm an Englishman, or I'm a nobleman. But they wouldn't say, I'm white, he's black. But the mid-1600s would be a turning point. Indentured servants became problematic. They moved on, and in fact, they often became competition. And so slavery would become legally recognized. It was no longer just heathens who were enslaved, but anybody whose ancestors were heathens. It became a lifelong condition. It was passed down generation after generation. And the scholar George Fredrickson said, this was the very moment, in fact, that race, not religion, became the justification for slavery. And in characterizing people by race and creating a hierarchy, white people are the master, black people are the slaves, that became the law of the land. And the way to justify the enslavement of other human beings, which was hard to do sometimes, was to say, literally, the Bible supports it, and also to create a narrative that blacks were not actually human beings. And if they weren't really human beings, then they really didn't have the capacity to live as free people, right? And and if they lacked the properties that would entitle them to be free, then... We weren't doing anything wrong. They're not like us. And it became a psychological necessity to think negatively of the people you were enslaving to justify the awful things that you were doing to them. This rationalization, based on what we casually call racist phenotype, continued for centuries, and the vestiges of it continue to this day. It ushered in an American era that we rarely talk about, Reconstruction and Jim Crow and segregation and what came with that which was violence and domestic terror and exploitation. And we are uncomfortable discussing this part of our American history. Two weeks ago, there was a new study that came out on lynching in America. It found that there were just under 4,000 cases of black people who were lynched between 1877 and 1950. It was domestic terrorism, a violent public spectacle with the goal of terrorizing black people and hunting them down and killing them. And we'd like to imagine that it was perpetrated by a lunatic fringe. A bunch of extremists did these terrible things. But history tells us that was not the case. 
An example, 1930, young black man in the American South, shot, hung, burned, castrated. His genitals and his fingers were cut and handed off, sold to people in the crowd. The crowd numbered in the thousands, and it was entertainment. People brought their children. And they smiled for the roving photographers who, in turn, sold postcards for 15 cents. It was a community celebration, and its point was to underscore racial domination. We do not like to confront our own horrors, but this is a legacy of race in America. Many people of all races like to think the history of race in America is something like this. There was slavery. It was bad. Lincoln freed the slaves. Then Martin Luther King Jr. brought in civil rights. Then Obama was elected, and it's all good. Not so much. It's a pleasant summary, but it actually skips the violence and the horror and the true telling of what actually happened. And we are here to have a conversation today. And we are not going to fear the truth of our own history. Because you cannot advance good if you don't confront bad. And you cannot seek renewal if you are not willing to dig into the uncomfortable truths about how we got here today. Today in America, we grapple with race. My most recent documentary for CNN took a look at the relationship between black people and the police. And our documentary happened to coincide with several high-profile killings by police of black men in Missouri and New York City and Ohio and, and elsewhere. And our documentary opened with the video of the choking death of Eric Garner. You'll remember, he said, I can't breathe. Happened in Staten Island. And we focused on the statistics that we knew about in stop and frisk policy in New York City. And one very disturbing statistic was that in a roughly 10-year period in New York, approximately 5 million people were stopped by police. 83% of them were black and Hispanic men. And 90%, that's 90%, were not found guilty of any crime. Not a felony, not a misdemeanor, they didn't get a ticket. Nine out of 10 people had done nothing. Our documentary profiled a young man named Kishan who's been stopped a hundred times starting from when he was about 13 years old and he describes the humiliation of being pushed up against a wall in search, a wall on his college campus as his classmates are walking by and his professors are walking by. What does it do to people to be considered a suspect constantly in their own neighborhood because of the color of their skin? Our history isn't black history squeezed into the shortest month of the year. It's American history and it's got its amazing narratives and it's got its inspirational moments and it has its very ugly parts and we need to confront them and dissect them and consider the implications of them as we wrestle with the challenges of racial conflict in modern day America. Brain science gives us hope. Researchers tell us we can override how our brain works. We can trick our brain into breaking those us and them associations and that's great news. And my belief in human beings gives me great hope. My mother used to tell me the story of walking in Baltimore with my two older sisters in the early 1960s. They were toddlers. And I asked her, so what was it like to live in a city where your marriage was illegal and your children were considered to be genetically inferior? People used to spit on us, she said. Oh my goodness, what did you do? I asked her. 
And her answer stuck with me forever. She said, we knew America was better than that. And by extension, that meant she was there to be part of constructive change. True optimism, I think, is knowing that there is an American ideal, that all men are created equal. But when that line was drafted into the Declaration of Independence, many members of Congress held slaves, and the hypocrisy was pointed out even at that time in 1776. But they were stating an ideal of what it meant, what it could mean to be an American. We cannot advance without honest conversations about our shared American history. What will bring renewal is digging into those tougher moments in history and having the courage to learn our own story so we can be better and we can do better. Well, again, thanks for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. And Gabe, such an important talk as we wind down Black History Month with CNN's Soledad O'Brien. And I know her voice is probably quite familiar, but to hear her take on these topics and help us just gain some perspective. I thought a couple of the quotes that just stood out to me. One, she says, our minds are predisposed, scientists tell us, to make generalizations about people. How important is that to just remember that every individual is made uniquely in the image of God? No two people are the same. But in our own ways, we tend to try to generalize, to try to make one person's story everybody's story. It simply isn't true. She also says this, you cannot advance good if you don't confront bad, and you cannot seek renewal if you're not willing to dig into the uncomfortable truth about how we got here today. I think that just captures so much of what these last few years of conversations have been about in American life and American culture is taking a good look at the past and and a reckoning taking place that discovers and exposes things that were true, that maybe were covered up, were never told, the stories that we never heard. And then we start to hear them and we have to grapple with them and we have to wrestle with now, what does that mean? What has that caused? What are the wounds that have erupted because of it? And so I'm grateful for talks like this. I'm grateful for moments like this, for months like this, where we take a moment out and we, we do have to reckon with our past. We do have to recognize how far we've come, but also how much further we have to go. And so I hope this encourages you today as you continue forward in your relationships, your friendships, that we'll all look at those that we come into contact with who are different than us. And we will see that as a gift, not as a generalization, but as a unique contribution and gift from God to our world and to our communities. I hope you have a wonderful week. Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.